Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Did you know that In Social Work now has an online mailing list? To receive updates on newly released podcasts, go to our website, www.insocialwork.org, and click on the envelope icon near the center right of the page and just above our most recent episode. You will be taken to a new page where you can sign up to stay in touch with In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims. Burnout and its sibling compassion fatigue is a significant concern in professional social work. Either can leave social workers feeling angry, frustrated, and powerless. These feelings can lead to disengagement from clients and from the work. Burnout can be conceptualized as a reaction to the work environment. Examples could include problematic administrative and staff interactions, excessive or uncontrolled workload demands, or the lack of adequate resources. These can place continuing and or escalating stress on social work professionals who try to maintain their best efforts in the provision of service. Compassion fatigue results from the work of caring for others. The demands of the use of self by social work professionals with individuals and groups can leave one feeling drained and out of touch with their own emotional state. This can impact the professional and personal relationships that one has. To have positive professional and personal lives, social workers, developing social workers, as well as other human service providers must learn how to take care of themselves. Elaine Hammond, a University at Buffalo School of Social Work alum, is a licensed master social worker with 35 years of professional practice. Her previous work has included child welfare, mediation and arbitration, as well as clinical mental health practice. Teaching part-time at the University at Buffalo Schools of Social Work and Law, Ms. Hammond's current focus is on teaching and training within an integrated trauma-informed paradigm. Ms. Hammond has a passion for helping caregivers of all kinds learn to better care for themselves. Working from an integrated, trauma-informed perspective, she has a private practice specializing in working with very small children and their families and with adults who experience traumatic events in early childhood. Ms. Hammond encourages every student and as many colleagues as possible to find a mindfulness practice that works for them reminding them to breathe and, when appropriate, to consume chocolate. In this podcast, Ms. Hammond uses a trauma-informed perspective to provide a paradigm to help one think about self-care. Using the letters M-O-R-P-H, or mindfulness, organizing, resources, pillars, and humanity, Ms. Hammond provides a direction for us to think about how to create an individualized self-care strategy. Ms. Hammond was interviewed for this podcast by Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean of the School of Social Work at the University at Buffalo. 
This episode was recorded July 2013. Hi, this is Nancy Smith, and I'm the Dean at the School of Social Work here at the University of Buffalo, and today I'm honored to have a chance to spend some time talking to a friend and former colleague, actually still a colleague. I was going to say, I still hang out there from time to time. <laughs> yeah, she still hangs out. Elaine Hammond, who has done lots of thinking and teaching about the concept of self-care for professionals. So I'd like to start by welcoming you, Elaine. Thanks for agreeing to speak to me about this. You are so welcome. I feel quite honored to spend this time. Let me start by just asking you to talk about what you mean when you talk about self-care. What does that even mean? I think that one way that will make sense to the audience is to start from the negative side. Eventually, we're going to start talking in a way where there are almost no negatives. But in the absence of self-care, we lose our sense of meaning in life. We don't perhaps take good care of our bodies. We fall into ways of thinking that aren't entirely useful to us. Our emotions begin to drive us in a, a reactive kind of fashion. And as Vanderkolk would say about trauma reactions, our sense of life meaning it can really be disrupted. And for us as professionals, a lot of our sense of self-meaning and life meaning is the work that we do. It doesn't make a difference. Are we able to make an impact in the world? Are we doing a good job? And for so many of us, looking at it through that lens we tend to prioritize the care that we give to others. And we don't necessarily take care of all of those dynamics for ourselves. We're not necessarily taking our lunch breaks. We're not necessarily having conversations with our supervisor about what feels safe in terms of caseload. We're not necessarily taking time for fun or pleasure. We're just not necessarily attending to our own needs as human beings. When we think of ourselves only as professionals or place in the psychodynamic folks would say an overdetermined amount of priority on our professional selves, then we're not starting with ourselves as human. We're not taking good care of our own humanity. Okay, so then self-care really is then about acknowledging our humanity and taking the care to care for ourselves in the same way that we would be thinking about caring for others. So let me ask a question, and I don't want to stay on this negative part for too long, but I do think the question needs to be asked, what do you think it is that gets in the way of us doing this for ourselves? In other words, why is it that we come in and, you know, I'm thinking about social work, but I know that you've thought about this for many professions, but why is it that we come in focusing only on caring for the other and don't seem to apply these ideas to ourselves? That's a very good question, and I think it has a complicated answer. For some of us, especially in social work, and I also see this a little bit as I interact with professionals in the medical field. We come to the profession for very specific reasons. Something has happened to us in our lives where we've had interventions from our choices of life profession that either worked really well for us, and so we want to be a part of that. 
and we want to perhaps give back, which sets very high expectations for how we're going to engage in the profession. And then conversely, the help and intervention that we may have had may not have been so great in our opinion. And so we may seek to join that profession or engage in that particular paradigm of things that can go wrong in a person's life in a way that intervenes better, just does better, or perhaps even attempts to fix problems. Again, setting up enormous expectations. There is the paradigm of the amount of time that is put in to becoming a professional. In our own profession, we're looking at anywhere between six, seven years, perhaps, of of post-secondary education. When I'm looking at law students and teaching law students, looking at about that same amount of time. And then, of course, when we look at the medical professions, in some of those professions, we're looking at another 10, maybe 12 years. So we're looking at this huge investment of time, a lot of expectations that build up in that time period about what we're going to do when we finally graduate and actually are permitted to work. There is the pressure of student loans, the financial realities of subsidizing a professional education are enormous and place a certain expectation that we must engage at a very rigorous level in order to allow ourselves to be financially secure enough in order to kind of make up for that. And then I also believe that academia does a poor job of encouraging self-care in students. We are often, and appropriately, I'm not saying that it's not appropriate, but we're often asking students to prioritize their academic pursuits above everything else. I'm not persuaded that that's always appropriate. And I am persuaded that it sets up an expectation that our simple humanity is always secondary to some sort of material goal. And yes, now we begin to drift a little into the esoteric. One of the things I've really looked forward to about this conversation is that when I'm teaching and when I'm training, I'm simply immersed in the practicalities. What does the research tell us about eating? What does it tell us about relationship? What does it tell us about mindfulness? What does it tell us about meditation? A couple of the interventions that I very specifically teach. And I very, very seldom get an opportunity to talk about why do I choose to do this kind of work and how do I come to the kinds of interventions that I believe are helpful. So that's some of where I think it's coming from. So as you can see, I mean, it's a convoluted, complex package and really different for every person. I definitely can hear that. And as you're talking, I can also really hear the cultural context here for the fact that we're in a culture that values many things over humanity and over the humanity of individuals. So that's part of what obviously makes it harder. I'm also thinking that there's such variation in terms of the types of settings people are working in, and even between settings. You know, you may have somebody working in places that are similar agencies, but the way the agency is administered may be very different in terms of whether it's built on principles that support self-care or not. And absolutely. I mean, as we move into the kind of, I have these five things that I kind of consider 
theoretically. And the fourth one really, I think, addresses that in a way that I believe can help practitioners in a variety of settings and a variety of professions take a look at their work environment and care for themselves better in that environment. Well, now that, that's great. Now you've piqued my interest. Why don't we back up? I'd love to hear about these five things. Okay. Well, we should just tell the audience a little. I mean, we do know one another, so you do know some things about me. I sometimes think perhaps too much. I do a lot of thinking. And part of my thinking when I'm just entertaining myself with thought is to come up with some sort of acronyms. I don't actually like acronyms in my everyday work. I don't use them with clients and I don't use them a whole lot in the classroom. But in my own mind, they help to keep me organized. So I have this acronym and I had help with it, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you either, where I think of us morphing, morph, M-O-R-P-H, morphing our work lives into a more humane and more compassionate. Probably compassionate is a good word for me to use around the entire kind of system. So what I look at is, first of all, mindfulness. And so it's a mindful organization of our resources within the pillars of what you and I know to be trauma-informed care and in a spirit of humanity which I believe leads us to a compassionate way of caring for ourselves in all of our lives, whether it's our personal relationships, but for this conversation, absolutely in our professional relationships. So mindfulness becomes the first pillar, so to speak. It does. And for some people, here we are talking about formal meditation. That's true for me. Any class that's had any kind of contact with me over a period of time knows that should I wander into their midst and have not had an opportunity for my daily meditation, things will not necessarily go as smoothly as they might on other occasions. But I'm not always talking about formal meditation. I'm going to refer to it as kind of like assuming the position with the hands in the, in the position and the feet and lotus and all that good stuff. It can be as simple as a single breath. We learn more and more neurobiologically about the skill of mindfulness, how to use a sense of paying attention to the present moment in a way that is really useful, especially in Western culture, where this is not a skill that is often, at least, taught to us natively in our culture and our families. So it really is about being present in the moment that we have right now. So when I talk about mindfulness, many people assume that I'm talking about a full meditation practice and there are real benefits to that and certainly work with students and clients around that. But it need not be that elaborate. And the reason that I begin with that is as simple as, at least demonstrated, as simply as when you run into someone you haven't seen in a while, what do you say? How are you? If we have no sense of mindfulness in our life, we really can't adequately answer that question because we truly may not know. What we know is we've been asked and that the social convention is to say, fine. Or one of the, I mean, there's lots of conventions. Oh, busy. I'm so busy, which is another topic for another day. But we know how to answer, but we don't necessarily know how to say, 
how am I really? And in a way that then fosters relationship with the person that's asking and fosters good relationship with ourselves. And I think that that's one of the things that we can take away from mindfulness practice is that primarily our relationship with ourselves really improves. Well, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about how the simple act of staying present, which is took me years to figure out that that's why everyone wants you to notice the breath, because your breath can only be in the present. So, but the simply act of being present in the here and now is the place I need to be if I'm going to make a choice to behave differently. And so it, by being present in the here and now, I open up the space to make a choice about changing other things in my life, changing how I care for myself, for instance. Absolutely. One of the things that when I work with adolescents and I teach them this skill, sometimes actually they're resistant to it because they fear that they will never be able to get angry again. And they've come to really depend on the emotion and the actions and the behaviors in anger in order to be in relationship and make some impact in their world. And one of the things I tell them is that mindfulness will not take that choice away from you. And in fact, if you choose to behave in an angry fashion, at least you'll be present for the event and you will know exactly what you're saying and what's going on. Kind of be able to enjoy it a little bit better. Okay. So the M, mindfulness, is the first principle then in self-care. Right. And then I look at the O is really that, so how can we organize our thoughts? And this is where I begin to look at the difference between judgment and assessment. So if we organize our thoughts and our professional behaviors around judgment, then essentially we make decisions and we close the door on those decisions. It often involves, as I mentioned to you earlier as we were chatting, this comes from the work of Brene Brown, who talks so much and writes so eloquently around shame and blame. And I see shame and blame as being a part of this judgment. It's a very dual way of looking at things. Things are right or things are wrong. And again, that fits into this the setup that we very often professionally have that there is a single right way to do things. There is a single right way to be a good professional. And if we don't behave in that very particular way and we take on a label of burnt out or we take on a label of impairment, there's a lot of accusation in that very much the way the research talks about labeling in terms of diagnosis, taking on these labels can perpetuate these judging behaviors, can perpetuate the feelings of shame and blame, and they really don't leave us with very many options other than to react in the moment. We have to go back to old behaviors and we simply knee-jerk react. If we can allow ourselves to assess, that leaves space open for movement, for choice, for change. And we then can replace blame and shame with acknowledgement and responsibility. And that leaves us in a position where we can then respond to the various things that are going on in our lives. 
So that just, it's simply a way of organizing our thoughts and our experiences. We may well have all kinds of experiences that will leave us feeling unskilled or helpless or hopeless. This may trigger things that have happened before in our lives. And the research around burnout talks quite a bit about these feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, that our skills are simply not adequate for the challenges that we are being presented with, almost identical to the dynamics in everyday life, except put into the professional arena. So this is a different way of organizing our thought. I think of it almost like a meta reframing that allows you to reframe your experiences in the moment. So here's an example just from this morning. In my, as you know, very tiny private practice, right now I work exclusively, all of my clients are professional caregivers. And I was speaking with a woman this morning who made a very, very small error on a billing form and proceeded to make copies of it as she should have. And when she noticed this very small error, immediately went to a place of, I am so stupid. Those were the, she said she heard those words just yelling in her head. I am so stupid. And I said to her, okay, now as we've been talking, what is it? She said, absolutely. It was a judgment. It left me with the door slammed and not much room to do anything except stand at the copier and try not to cry. So then if we look at that in terms of assessment, she was able then to back up and say, I was distracted by one thing and another. It's not the disaster of the century. I will then feed these bad copies into the shredder. I will correct the space on the original and I will make new copies. A much more noticing and assessing response as opposed to judging and blaming oneself in the present moment. So then we get to R, and R is about resources. And I take this directly from the sanctuary model. And as you know, uh, Sandra Bloom's sanctuary model, it's, it's large, it's complex. There's a great deal more to it than what I'm about to say. But one of the nuggets that is useful on an everyday basis for caring for ourselves in the professional environment is looking at the three morning questions. How am I feeling? What do I need? Or what is my goal? And for this conversation, I look at those as the same thing. And who can help me? This allows us to go into what the research on burnout, where they talk about the need for resiliency and that we build professional resiliency through our skills by having challenges in our professional lives that are appropriate to our skill level, our relationships with our colleagues, our supervision, and the, our greater treatment community, including our clients. So when you're feeling, in, when you've used your mindfulness, and you know that something is amiss, and you framed it into an assessment mode, then this is a way to say, okay, what am I feeling in this moment? And then what kind of help do I need? And the reason that I move what is my goal to what do I need 
is because I have found over time that it's useful for professionals to give themselves permission to use the word need for themselves. When we're not caring well for ourselves, we tend to set aside our needs, almost as if we have no actual needs, as if everything in our lives is, is just a want or a desire. But no, we do have needs, and we can give ourselves permission in the professional environment to say, what do I need? And then who can help me? And it might be that the who can help me is, well, so if we back up a little, perhaps someone is feeling simply overwhelmed by the presentation of the client that they've just had. And they're feeling helpless, as though that this is just not a person in a situation that they believe they can intervene with. Their skills are not adequate to the situation. And that may or may not be accurate, but it's absolutely true and useful in terms of the feeling that they're having in that moment. So then what is their goal or what do they need? If we're in an assessment mode where we're taking responsibility and we're trying to have a good response to what's going on, it might be that we need to read that book on this particular client dynamic that we've been setting aside for a long time. It might be that we need to seek out training. It might be that we need to prioritize this in supervision. So there could be any number of things that we might assess as being important in that. It'd be really empowering and, and supportive to us in working with this client. And then who can help me? It might be that someone totally unrelated to the professional environment can help you. You may need to speak with your partner or spouse about having some space in the evening to read for the next few weeks. It might be that you need to approach the training or human resources folks at your place of employment to see if there's any training money available or there's any training coming up or can you make a suggestion around this particular kind of training. So this is the way I look at how do we get our resources together. Okay. I'm just trying to take it all in because I'm thinking you're going to be deciding on resources based upon both the assessment and then you're answering the questions of what do I need and what's my goal. And then uh, when you know your needs or your goal, then you can best say, well, where could the help sit? And it's possible the help might not even be I have a specific plan. It may be there's someone I need to talk to to help me come up with a plan. So then where does it move from this step? So from here, it moves into the place that is probably, at least I've found, the most problematic outside of our own school of social work. And that's where I help people look at the five pillars of trauma-informed praxis and how might these apply to us as professionals. I actually did not begin doing this with social work students, however. I first began doing this in terms of uh, students in academia with the law students that I see every year. I see probably, I don't know, 40 to 50 some odd law students a year in the classroom situation. It's a course on ethics and professional ethics for them. We spent some time talking about making a good fit in your professional environment as support for legal ethics, and that then led me in my success in talking with them in this paradigm, which made incredible sense to them to spread it out into other areas. 
but without any kind of discussion, if you just hear that this is about trauma-informed praxis, A, as you and I both know, you might not know the word praxis, or all you hear is trauma. And, oh, what are you saying? You know, work itself is going to kill me. No, that's not the case. It's a paradigm that has been put together. It's very useful. It has good accuracy. It has good utility, which I think makes it really true. But its labeling can get in the way. But that said, the pillars themselves, instead of looking at them in how we serve clients, we can reframe them and rework them into how do we make choices and decisions and engage with our professional selves in ways that will take good care of us. So the first one, although they're not hierarchical, they do kind of make sense to talk about in this order. Then the first one is safety. When I'm talking with social workers and young attorneys as well, actually even attorneys, somewhat into the career, we're very often talking about caseload size. That's something that helps them to begin to understand that I'm talking about more than do they have a lock on their door? Is their car parked in a safe place? Are they able to call for help in their office if they need to? Certainly those are safety issues. And if we don't have those, they can impair us in the work environment. But I'm also talking about more than that. I'm talking about what are the conditions that we need to feel safe in the work that we do? Do we have good supervision? That can be a safety issue. Do we have a supervisor that we feel hears us and supports us well and helps us to come up with new ideas? As I've worked with young attorneys over the last few years, one of my shocks, almost every semester I stand there and go, really? You really, this really happens? And they all laugh at me. I, the very first year, though, and I still kind of haven't gotten used to it, is that supervision is not a model in the law. One is simply hired and put in a small room with a lot of paperwork and expected just to do. And it's not necessarily serving their profession anymore. Um, and that we can see some of that analogy in social work, although we do have a good tradition of supervision. Agencies are heavily loaded. They have a lot of responsibilities. Resources are not necessarily what they should be or could be which can leave people feeling like they're really unsafely hanging out there somewhere. Right. Or supervision can be just let's review the charts to make sure you've got stuff done. And it's not supervision that really focuses on what's happening in the work and how I'm doing with the work, those types of things. Absolutely. So that's what those are the things that I'm talking about when I'm talking about safety. Then we go to trustworthiness. For practitioners, this is about having the trust that the both the explicit and the implicit contracts that you entered into when you agreed to work for this agency are going to be upheld. And if they're not, that'll come out a little bit later. But one of my own examples is I was once hired in a position and the expectation was that I would have between 75 and 80 families on my caseload, which you and I both know is a lot of families. Um, but that was an explicit agreement when I went in there. And when I got to 105, there really wasn't anything other than the shrugging of shoulders. And what I found in that particular situation was that my lack of trust that those boundaries would be respected 
and our agreements followed through with really began to leak into a lot of other areas of the work. It became a very unuseful situation to have that particular issue of trust taken away. Again, we could be talking about just about anything. You know, you're told you have X amount of vacation a year and you trust that that's the case. It may, however, be that you find out that, okay, well, you have vacation days, but you can only use them under conditions A, B, C, and D, and when Mercury isn't retrograde. So there's a number of things that come into that. But very few people have really taken an an opportunity to look at how much they trust their work environment. So we go to choice. And the first thing I always say in choice is choice doesn't mean that you get everything that you ask for. (laughs) That's not the deal. Choice at its richest is about knowing that there are a number of options, some of which are available to you, some of which are not available to you. And what are your choices going to be about engaging with the system that is offering these opportunities? What kinds of choices will you make? Are you someone who prioritizes salary, for example, over number of hours that, you know, you're someone who might be willing to work 60 hours a week for a certain salary level. And that feels fine to you. Absolutely fine. Now, for someone else, that would be a choice that would not be a good way of caring for themselves. So choice is really, again, everything takes mindfulness, but especially I think when we're talking about the choice option it's important to take time to be mindful of what is healthy and what is good for you in your particular life and circumstance. I'll just go through the last two. We have collaboration. There are folks who no matter how good their work situation is, if they don't feel that they're heard, really heard, um, it might not be that things actually change, but the qualities that the research so often tells us that clients value in a clinician that you can do any number of interventions, but if the client does not feel that you are with them, doesn't believe that you have heard their concerns, the best of interventions may not be successful. And indeed, you may be able to choose an intervention because of time constraints or financial constraints or setting restraints that might not be optimal for this particular client, but have an excellent result with them in their situation if they really believe that they have heard you. And the same is true for employees. I think here we're talking about employee loyalty, the sense that we are a team, and absolutely for social workers, I believe that very often we need some sense of that, that we are engaged in a struggle with others, (laughs) and that they actually hear us. So that's what we're talking about there. Is there good agency communication? Collaboration can also leak into technological issues. Is your agency using technology that you feel comfortable with in terms of communication? If they're not, can you get comfortable with it? Do you have a Luddite agency that doesn't do anything technological, but that's a way that you really communicate well? So when we're talking about collaboration, we're also looking at communication style, very much as we work with a client. And all of this leads to that sense of empowerment. Does our work and the way we do it actually make a difference? in the world. I used to look at self-care really just through these five pillars. And it is a fine way to do it. It's a great way to do it. 
I can manage to work it out to talk about everything from, uh, I don't know, do you choose to take a walk at work at your lunchtime or sit at your desk and eat Snickers bars or I don't know. You know, I can manage to make these pillars applicable to almost any body, mind, or spirit support that's necessary in a full, compassionate human life. But I've really found that by adding some of these other considerations, it, it fleshes it out a little better. And that then finally, that H on the very end is in the spirit of humanity, that we are humans first. I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to the podcast that I did with Corey Bloomquist. As she's done this research, I mean, we can look at all kinds of things. You know, the statistics tell us about 75% of us will experience burnout. It talks about alcohol and drug use, health and relationship consequences, you know, where it's more likely to be, fatigue, undirected excess energy. There's just this huge laundry list of things that we can look for and that the literature talks about and very much an emphasis on how do we identify impairment how do we kind of diagnose what's going on with someone? But the more she has looked at her data and with her colleagues who, with whom she works around this, the more firm they've become that starting with the professional self, it's not sufficient. We need to begin with the human self. And if we take good care of our humanity, then we will be in the best position to be really excellent professionals. That's excellent. So that's the H then. That makes sense. So the M is mindfulness. The O is organizing our thoughts. The R is resources. The P is pillars. And the H is our humanity. So that sort of helps you remember all of the elements of what should go into this process. It sounds like you also though have a process when you're teaching about this to get really concrete with people about things like sleep and eating, movement. Can you say a little bit about those types of things without giving me your semester-long version of all of this, but just to give people sort of a flavor for some of that? I can. I start essentially with the body. We can all, pretty much any profession, any room full of folks at any given time, you know, we can hook into when we're under stress, when things are pressured in our lives. It's very often the things around our bodies that we set aside first. We're at a point in science, in Western civilization, where we are really beginning to catch up in terms of data with realizations that have been a part of other civilizations, perhaps for thousands of years. And I really, I feel so fortunate to be working at a time when there's data that supports what has been known by various cultures in various times for a great deal of time about how to take good care of ourselves. So, for example, the research now you know, can tell us that we're looking ideally at between seven and nine hours of sleep a night, which is far more than we were talking about even 10 years ago. Science was telling us uh, five is probably enough. Well, we know now that five is not enough. 
and that we need this sleep in order to reduce systemic inflammation. We may gain weight as a virtue of not getting enough sleep. It can exacerbate diabetes as a virtue of not getting enough sleep. We know things about sleep now that it's good to have a room that feels slightly cool to you. And of course, that varies from person to person. That darkness is good. That either silence or a gentle white noise in the background is really ideal. I sometimes work with people, we're talking about clients, quite a bit around weaning away from a radio or a television. And I usually am able to have good success with that once I show them some of the data about how we kind of vacillate in our sleep cycle. And that as we come up toward the top of our cycle, if there is language that we identify as language um, going on in the background, we're far more likely to wake because our brain hears it and attaches to it and then wants to do something with it. So that's why looking at things like fan noise or ocean sounds or babbling brooks or I personally don't do bird sounds, but some people like bird sounds is a, a nice background kind of situation. When I'm talking about nutrition, I'm not out to promote any particular way of eating. Research is telling us more and more that the closer our food can be to how it grows, probably the better in the long run. So the more that you bring into your body that is as close to how it grows as possible, it's all good. Many people live an absolutely healthy life eating a lot of meat. Some folks will they'll believe that I have a bias toward any number of things, perhaps vegetarianism or, or whatever. I really don't. There's nothing in any culture, in, in any sense of knowledge, or in any data that tells us that we know the single best way to eat. But the closer to how it grows, the better you do. And you do better if you eat slightly smaller amounts more regularly throughout your day. And that can be a real issue in professional life. I think of one, well, actually twice in my career where I digressed into eating only at my desk. And it was all about paperwork, just trying to stay even with the constant flow of paperwork. And it wasn't in my best interest. And since it wasn't in my best interest, it wasn't in the best interest of the work either. So those are also issues around that. Movement, actually, they recently upped it. We were at 20 minutes a day, and it didn't have to be necessarily aerobic. And ideally, it was as early in the day as possible because that also supports a good sleep cycle and a good cycle of your various hormones that regulate sleep and wakefulness. They recently upped that to 30 minutes a day, although it still doesn't have to be terribly aerobic. So it can be simply a nice long walk with your somewhat elderly dog. So we're not talking here about conditioning. We're not talking necessarily about physical fitness. We're just talking about what does a body need in order to have a certain minimal amount of health and care in its life. And your body needs 30 minutes, ideally out of doors, in our neck of the woods. Sometimes that can be hard but ideally, out of doors. So those are some examples. 
I start with the body when I'm talking about the mind. I'm usually talking about thought patterns and how thought patterns arise. What are our automatic kinds of thoughts? What are some mechanisms for changing them? And this is very often where, and I have mindfulness in all of these things. So when I'm talking about mindfulness in the body, I'm really talking about the physical responses to breathing, how it alters systemic inflammation um, and calms that, how the oxygen in your brain increases the availability of neurotransmitters to bind appropriately in the various sections of the brain, how the massaging, just the belly going in and out as you're breathing, massages limbic tissue and massages the vagus nerve. And, you know, so I'm really concentrating on what that's about. We're talking about thoughts. Here's where I start to begin to introduce mindfulness in terms of thought. And here's probably the first time that I'm talking with students or practitioners about not judging. And I concentrate on that a lot in this particular kind of teaching and training. So that we're simply noticing, what am I thinking now? Even if it's in a slightly third person kind of fashion. Oh, look, here I am thinking that that other driver is not as skillful as I, although it, isn't that a kind way to put that? That was a very, yeah, you can tell I'm a social worker. Um, and I probably was thinking, was thinking that in more strong language. But we can't know what we're thinking in the present moment if we are not mindful. And that can allow us to come into the present moment. And I talk a little bit in this section about how thoughts that dwell excessively in the past can lead us to behaviors that look depressed. You know, so we're not talking about diagnosis here, just, you know, if we're always ruminating around the past and we're dissatisfied, that can look very much that way. If we are constantly projecting into the future and spending all of our time or a good deal of our time and energy there worrying about what will happen, then that leads to behaviors that can look anxious. And certainly in my experience with our students, it's very rare to come upon a graduate student who doesn't have a healthy dose of anxiety on board. Yeah, that's true. That's part of the student experience. So, And so this can be really helpful for them. And then we move into spirit. And when I'm teaching and talking about spirit, we're really talking about where do you find meaning in life? What is it in life that is greater than you? For some folks in any given room, those will be religious systems. But for some folks in almost any given room, that will be the scientific knowledge that the sun will rise tomorrow, not to get too any on all of us. But that is a certainty that one can count on and gives them perspective that there is a large universe out there going about its universal duties holding itself together, and that could bring perspective and meaning. So there's lots of different ways of bringing life meaning in. So those are many of the issues that I'm talking about in the practical when I'm talking with both with students and with practitioners. Well, and that's a great content, and I just love listening to you sort of share the knowledge base that you've picked up in terms of where the current research stands on these things, you know, in terms of what it's in telling us to help us make informed choices in our lives. Again, I feel so fortunate to be working in a time where this is true and fortunate that 
there are granting agencies and large respected institutions that are putting their time and their talent and their resources into looking at how do we care for ourselves better? How do we become more compassionate to ourselves? And therefore, how can we bring more compassion into the world? Well, and those are wonderful questions to end a podcast with. <laughs> Big ones that could be dialogues for hours and hours and hours. So I really want to thank you. It's been really wonderful to listen to the way that you come at this. And uh, I've done my own thinking about self-care, but you've really helped me put it in some larger frame and in sharing some of the ways that you come at it, both with the, the pillars of trauma-informed. And I love Morph. I'm very bad at coming up with these myself, but they do really help me remember things. So. Well, I didn't have this initially. I had a word that maybe like it would have been in a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon or something. But finally, I, with a little bit of assistance and brains that work in that direction well, was able to do this. And part of what I really hope out of this podcast, I am not a researcher myself. I appreciate research. I have a certain facility with it. You know, it makes my brain cells happy. But part of what I really hope comes out of the latter end of my career is that I have enough opportunities to talk about the things that I think about that it will spark curiosity in young researchers social work is in such a good position to take a lead in some of this research, not necessarily as a part of a discipline, but purely out of our own sense of the complexity and the richness of the life experience. Well, absolutely. And I think that's why I was so excited when I came across that podcast that you did with now it's Dr. Unquist. That's why I was so excited when I met her and heard about what she was doing because I love when I hear that social work is really beginning to bring some science to this with a lot of the wisdom, I think the practice wisdom that's there and integrating some of the research. So I think that bringing all of those lenses is how we can start to make some progress as a profession in really helping to begin to teach this to ourselves and to our students and practitioners. And I think that there's a lot of learning for us all to do. And I like the fact that you haven't limited your thinking about this to social work or even people in uh, human services, that it's really self-care is an important concept culturally, and it is for professionals. And I would say even for people working in jobs that haven't been classified as professions, they just have fewer choices in those situations. And so then it becomes much more incumbent on our society to talk about designing workplaces that honor these principles as well. It does. I've had a certain amount of success with this with snowplow drivers. And these are men who sit in cabs of impossibly large vehicles for up to 16 hours a day during weather events. And this paradigm makes sense to them. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. Well, and thank you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Dr. Nancy Smith interview Elaine Hammond on burnout and self-care. We hope that you found it instructive and that you will begin to integrate its elements into your practice. I'm Charles Sims. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. 
thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.